1: Hi, everyone. I'm Yasmeen. <laughs> Hi, I'm Alicia Pascual Peña.
2: Do we need to... I feel like they know who we are at this point. True.
1: No one knows who you are, Josie. What if no, no one's one ever heard this episode, like this show before? What if they're like, what the fuck is there we said?
2: Hopefully yeah. they would think it was like like a like a sex telephone, like mm. a hotline. It is. It's,
1: it's, it's, a, it's a hotline. It's a hotline where we tell you, uh, yeah. <laughs>
2: okay whatever welcome to the show oh
1: well, yeah this is our show
2: guys <laughs> hang out with uh, us anyway so guys. how are you why are you still gone and what's new with you mm-hmm.
1: well i'm taking the first flight saturday morning from london heathrow to i hopped off a plane and i'll be with you guys so i expect to sleep over at one of your houses um I'm still here. I'm coming back this weekend. I'm so excited. I just moved in my brother into his dorm Mm. in London.
3: That's insane.
1: I, yesterday,
2: or two days ago, I was flying back from Utah, and I was on the plane. And then at the beginning of the flight, the pilot was like, okay, well, just letting you guys know, this is going to be a rough flight. It will be extremely bumpy, and just a fair warning. And then halfway through, like, no, not halfway through, like 20 minutes before the end of the flight or 30 minutes before the end. The flight attendants were like, we will not be standing up to collect your trash. We will be sitting down. Please stay seated. Buckle up. Buckle up. Stay tight. Stay tight. And the plane was like dipped like no. literally 20 feet and then was like no. going side to side. Like I was like surfing. And then literally I just like saw this girl watching Don't Worry Darling. She was sitting next to me. No, no. And she seemed like so concerned. Like I felt her jolt and we didn't even say anything. We just grabbed each other and we're holding on to each other so tight. And we're like, what's your name? Like, where are you from? And we were just like talking (laughs) about everything. I was being so honest with her because in those moments, you just. You could have gone down. You could yep. have gone down. So I was just like telling her all about my life, and we were like, I, I, "I, I'm from the valley. I, I'm from San Francisco." And um, yeah, where are you from? And she's like, "I, I am. I live in uh, West Hollywood, and uh, I am. It's a writer." And anyway, she was a writer, and we ended up. She ended up telling, like, pitching me her shows within like the landing period. And finally, when we landed, we were like, "Oh fuck!" It literally was like the biggest relief because it
1: was so literally the scariest I've ever yeah. been on in my life. I just think it would be really, fu- not funny, but tragic. Not only if you went Stop. down because you would have not been here, but what? you would have also gone down watching Don't Worry Darling. Well, uh, I wasn't
2: watching Don't Worry Darling. I was watching Aaron watched. that 90s show. Anyway, so yeah, that was a God sent moment. And yeah.
1: Okay. Well, I'm so glad
2: you're here. Thanks. Um, <laughs> oh my God. I'm so sorry. We need to keep that it in. It beautiful. No. I wish I could inhale that.
1: Commit. I I'll wish commit. I could inhale it.
2: So, today we're doing something a little bit different. Our producer, Caroline Reston, and I have been extremely obsessed with learning about the Idaho murders. And for those of you that don't know, the Idaho murders were a group of college students who were killed in their home about a few weeks before Thanksgiving last year. Caroline and I have been talking about it so much, not only about the murders themselves, but the conversation around murder and true crime in general and why we feel it is important to discuss it. So that's what we're going to do today.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I My TikTok is, to a, is literally only Idaho murders, so I know way too much i have not had a good night of sleep in months
1: well welcome to the pod i Beyond grateful to have you and it's, it's crazy how much tiktok will like listen to everything that you talk about and your whole algorithm will be exactly that for the next nine years you know.
4: and also just a preface we've done extensive research on this it's not just tiktok information yeah exactly. <laughs> good. it's not just tiktok yeah, knowledge yeah, it's,
1: it's, it's not and I, I think it's important just to start off by also saying from the pod it's this is not a way to glorify romanticize or uh, p- put this in like a fantasy way, we're just trying to talk about this really horrific thing that happened and why people are so fascinated with true crime. Exactly. Today. Yeah.
2: So Caroline and I will be walking everyone through what happened. This story revolves around four close friends, Zana, Ethan, Kaylee, and Maddie. On the evening of November 12th, as I mentioned, just two weeks before the students were supposed to go home for Thanksgiving break, these four friends were out Ethan and Zanna were seen at the Sig Kai house at the University of Idaho campus at approximately 9 p.m. on November 12th to about 1.45 a.m. The surviving roommate estimates that around 1.45 a.m., Ethan and Zanna returned home to the house. Meanwhile, Kaylee and Madison were at a local bar called The Corner Club in Moscow between 10 p.m. to about 1.30 in the morning. And at approximately 1.30 a.m., CCTV footage shows Maddie and Kaylee are at a local food vendor called The Grub Truck in downtown Moscow. The Grub Truck live streams video from their food truck on Twitch, mm. which is available if you guys want to see that.
1: I Yeah, I watched it. It's it's crazy.
2: It's, Interesting. It's chilling that just hours before their murders, they're living so freely and happily. So that was the last time they were seen, like, on camera? Yes. Was at this food truck? Yeah. The two surviving roommates both made statements during interviews to investigators that all of their roommates were home by around 2 a.m. and asleep or at least in their rooms by approximately 4 a.m. And Xana through digital history?
4: Yeah, so essentially, like, they looked into her phone and, like, activity and, like, data on her phone showed that she was most likely on TikTok at like 4 a.m., 4.12 a.m., which means she was probably awake in the window that these murders happened. And the mm. records oh obtained from that download
2: showed that she had actually ordered a DoorDash that she had Jesus. obtained around approximately 4 a.m. So yeah. she was definitely up and likely awake, like you said, by around 4.12.
4: Yeah, and like what's honestly, I'm going to get into the, murders, the murder part of this, but what's so creepy about it is this like, this is such a normal college Saturday night. Yeah. Like, you're out, yeah. you're drinking, you're ordering DoorDash, you're yeah. going to a food truck. You're on so social media, like, it, <laughs> y'all are out late. Like, yeah. It just is so I, relatable, and it's, it just makes it all so much creepier because, obviously, it could have been any of us. Any of us. Yeah. So, essentially, all four of the murders—so, in the house of all these roommates, there were six roommates, two surviving roommates— And all of the murders went down between around 4 a.m. and 425 a.m. So four people were murdered in 20 minutes? In 25 minutes. Whoa, okay.
2: And I think it can be helpful to mention the layout of the house because
4: I think it's really integral to the intrigue in the story. Right. So the way the house is configured is that there are three floors, but the second floor is where the entrance is the front door entrance. And the first floor, think about think about it more as a basement. So the two surviving roommates, one was in the basement. One was on the second floor. Kaylee and Madison were on the third floor. And Zana and Ethan were on the second floor. Yes, on and, oh, the opposite wow. side yeah. of that floor. So think of it like a, like a house
2: that is quite long, right? Yeah, okay. And so on one side, you have two of the roommates. And on the other side, you have surviving roommate
4: yeah so like josie was just saying around like 4 4 12 a.m Xana and ethan who were boyfriend girlfriend got a door dash order they were on their phone meanwhile kaylee and madison the two roommates who were best friends were in their room presumably asleep so the murderer came in on the second floor and went to the third floor to Kaylee and Madison's room first, where he proceeded to horrifically kill them in their sleep, which is just a whole level of inhumanity. According to the coroner, Kaylee and Madison didn't have any defensive wounds, which probably suggests that they they were asleep. asleep asleep When the murders happened. When the murders happened. And their wounds were incredibly, incredibly savage and deep. Kaylee's dad described it as these weren't stab wounds. These were gouges of someone who was being targeted. Kaylee and Madison were murdered so after he killed them he went down back to the second floor where ethan and zana were there presumably awake and proceeded to kill them now the coroner reported that they had defensive wounds meaning they were awake and fighting back which is consistent with their wounds because one of them was on the floor and one of them was in the bed so something an altercation had gone down yeah an down. altercation they had clearly down. were
2: And also court documents revealed that a security camera from a nearby home captured audio of what was like a whimper, a loud thud, thud, and a dog barking, which would make sense. And even one of the surviving roommates said that because she was up during that time, she heard something to the effect of another girl saying, I think someone's here. And then...
4: Someone else saying, don't worry, I think I can help you. Yeah. Which Um, is chilling. The most chilling part of this story is after all of... murders went down one of the roommates you know who kept hearing noises checked outside of one of the surviving roommates kept looking out out of her bedroom door to see like what was happening and both times she reported like different sounds and the third time she saw a tall black figure all in all wearing black with a black face mask with bushy eyebrows walk towards her in the middle of the night and walk out the sliding door on the second floor so she says she froze in shock and went back into her room and locked the door. She said she didn't recognize him, but just that all this had gone down. She did not immediately call 911, which has caused a lot of conspiracies. Yeah. But, rightfully so as well, too, because I think a lot of
2: people may presume that when you're in a situation like this that you may act
4: differently, but you really you never know. Until you're there. Until you're there, what you would do. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to paint a little bit, if it's okay with you guys, yeah, paint a little bit of a picture of why I want to defend the surviving roommates because it's like, think about it. It's four a.m. You're super drunk. There are you a bunch of sleep. people in your house probably all the time. Like it's not that crazy that a creepy figure might be walking across your house when you're just like not really paying attention, and who knows, and you're scared.
1: But but he didn't. Ha- but di- didn't you say that he had something over his
2: face? Yeah. Yeah, it yeah, is face
4: mask. Like, a, you're, you're
2: exhausted and you're drunk. Yeah. And my friend Ange was saying to me the other day that when she read about this, she immediately thought of me, which is a little concerning. <laughs> um, but that? she basically was just like, I remember that was like your house in college all the time. People were always going in and out. Like, I had yeah. six other roommates,
3: yeah. so seven
2: in total. Like, and one of them always had a boy over, or someone over. Like, if, I was going to the bathroom, I wouldn't have thought twice about seeing someone. And especially after being drunk and exhausted, you're not even like fully seeing what's in front of you. You're not in your right mind. Like, it's been insane because I'm not that
3: familiar with this story. But the discourse that I have seen on my TikTok is people like very aggressively saying, oh, how could she? Like, she has something involved, X, Y, Z. And I'm like, the lack of empathy and compassion is crazy. One yeah, just, there it j- is. One, it is. just the ability for people to talk about these murders in such a callous way is disgusting. Like, let's never forget people lost their lives and should still be here and were murdered violently, one. And then two, you don't know what you would do unless you were in that situation. You've never been exactly, in a house, thank Alicia. God, yeah. and I hope you never are. You've never been in a house where four of the people that you loved and lived with were murdered. That's just not on the top of your brain. You know, yeah. like, I come from... You know, a, a, a very I think area where there's a lot of adversity, right? But mm-hmm. if I'm at college, like I was an RA. I lived with eight other girls I'd never met. I was placed there. You didn't know I was an RA?
2: No.
3: Yeah, I was an RA. I love that but room. she was, I was placed RA. in a house with seven other girls that I had never met. There were they were on sports teams. There were guys in and out of the house. Because I was an RA, I was used to seeing things at four AM on duty that were sure. so peculiar. It wouldn't have been in the front of my mind. You never like, think the oh. worst is happening. Yeah. <laughs> and it's unfortunate that you kind of have to. Like, you have to, like, be up on guard and be protective. But it, I think that we should have a lot more compassion for this. I, I agree.
2: So about eight hours later, one of the surviving roommates called 911. And it is reported from that 911 call that there was some sort of unconscious person. And not much more from what they released to the public of what was said specifically on that call. Mm. And when the police came to the house, they found, obviously, a horrific crime scene and realized that this was going to be a long, long journey and much more serious than probably anything they've dealt with in any recent time. So when investigators found this crime scene, they immediately started looking at CCTV footage from the neighborhood. And looking through the security footage in this King Road neighborhood, the police were shown several sightings of a vehicle that they refer to as suspect vehicle, one, which was a white Hyundai Elantra.
4: Elantra.
2: Elantra? Oh. Did it say cilantra? Cilantro. Not
1: cilantro, please.
2: <laughs> Wait, let
4: me double check. It's an Elantra. It's an Elantra. Yeah. That's me riding cilantra. Okay,
2: okay. So, when the investigators started this case, they immediately went to the CCTV footage of the King Road neighborhood. Where around 3:30 a.m. to about approximately 4:20 a.m., a Hyundai Elantra was seen driving around, and these sightings show what is referred to in the affidavit as suspect vehicle one making an initial three passes by the King Road residence where they all had lived, and leaving via a street called End to Drive.
4: At 4.20 a.m., like speeding away.
1: So he was going around the house before he even Surveilling the house. Jesus Christ. He chose this
4: house.
1: Yeah, this was targeted. Well,
2: he actually chose this house, yeah, much sooner than this, is what is presumed. And based on the detective's experience as a patrol officer, this is a residential neighborhood with obviously very limited number of vehicles passing in. It's highly unlikely that another car that didn't belong to that neighborhood would be driving during the early morning hours of this time. And upon review of the CCTV footage, there's actually only a few cars that enter and exit this area during this time frame. So this was extremely out of the ordinary.
4: Yeah. And then so um, they obviously wanted to look into this car more. And as they like started, they were able to obtain records of video camera footage around the neighborhood weeks before. And what they saw was multiple times this white Hyundai Elantra circling the neighborhood, I think almost eight times weeks before the actual murders. So... With that information, they wanted to.
1: Premeditated.
4: Yeah. So, with that information, they were like, okay, so cell phone data must be linked to Mm. this car. So, that's when they got a warrant. Towers and stuff. Yeah. So, once they got, they were able to identify whose car this was. They were able to get a search warrant for their cellular phone data to see if pins matched up with the car's location, Mm. on top of whether or not the cell phone pins ever were close to the home. So, with the Hyundai Elantra, they are able to, based on just, like, registration, be able to tie it to a suspect. And once they are able to do that, they are able to get a search warrant for the suspect's cellular phone records to see his movements.
2: And based on previous research of crimes in general, it is really common for suspects and perpetrators to, like, leave their phone when they're entering a crime scene or to turn their phone off. So, it looked extremely, how do you say? Suspect. Suspect. Sus. 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 Sus- when the detective applied and was granted a search warrant for historical phone records, it revealed in the early morning hours of November 13th that although the phone was in the area, there was a lack of data with that specific phone between 2.47 a.m. and 4.48 a.m., which is consistent with the suspect attempting to conceal his location during this homicide, which is what they had expected, as that's quite common
4: with people, like I said, turning off their phones. Yeah. So that made him look even more, more. guilty. Yeah.
1: Jesus. Once they were
4: able to align those two datas, they started to really zone in on this guy. Plus, like, they found DNA on a sheath left, like, a knife sheath left in the house. So. Yeah.
2: Oh, God. The only evidence that was left in the house that could be relating to a suspect was not only, um, like you mentioned, the sheath, but also a shoe print
4: mm-hmm. in
2: the, was it the living room? or?
4: I think it was right outside of uh, one of the surviving roommates' rooms.
2: So, there, it's like a van shoe print in the ground,
4: so... That had like a diamond pattern, which I found interesting. Interesting. I feel like he's prepped this yes. for weeks, obviously, because he's been surveilling. He was in but also, full like, black.
2: He wasn't trying
1: to be knew Exactly. He knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah,
2: he had been seen in the area before. But not only that, it's good that you mentioned that because he actually was a Ph.D. student at Washington State University pursuing a degree in criminology. And we're talking about Brian Koberger. Yes, the suspect. And he had earned undergraduate degrees in psychology and cloud-based forensics. And he actually received his master's in criminal justice. So this was something he was extremely passionate about. His friends that were interviewed in documentaries that I was watching last night spoke a lot about how he was extremely interested in this subject and the idea of crime in general. And while he was studying at school, uh, his university approved a Reddit survey that he put out asking suspects of murders and crimes how they committed their crimes, what was their mindset no, while they were doing no. it. And that was actually a university, university. It was actually a university this. approved study that, that he ethical. conducted.
1: I'm sorry. And also, that that is so diabolical. Well, it's, ethi- so diabolical. it's ethical
2: because this is consistent with people who pursue degrees yeah. in criminology. Sure. It's not totally out of the normal to release a survey like yeah. that. To so understand suspects and why they do what they do. But so it definitely can- sure. substantiates the circumstantial evidence surrounding the fact that he had thought about this. Oh, This is yeah. something that was on his mind. And
1: he was fascinated with murder. And
2: that's something he was extremely fascinated with. That's as morbid also, as he that was. Sounds.
1: Also, he was very knowledgeable about what to do mm. and how to get away with it. And, and yet he made what.
4: a lot of mistakes. <laughs> okay.
1: And yet
2: he was dumb as fuck. <laughs>
4: he was a he, fucking idiot. Many
2: mistakes. And I think it's important to clarify that Although he was a student pursuing a a Ph.D., he actually wasn't a student at the University of Idaho. He was a student at Washington State University. And it has been said that him and his dad planned to drive from Washington State University to Pennsylvania, where his family lives, for Thanksgiving break. So that was already planned. So, around a few days or so after... A lot to be thankful around that Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) Oh, my God. So, around a few days or so after the murder, him and his dad drove from Washington to Pennsylvania. And along this route, they were stopped by the police two times for traffic violations. Shut up. I believe one of them was for tailgating, if not both of them. And you can actually see on the police officer's body cam footage, him talking to the police officer sort of
4: anxiously. Yeah, um, And he's talking Honestly. about at some point, like, like a mass shooting happening. that happened. Yeah. Which is, like, very unclear what he's talking about. And also why
2: he's speaking of it. On December 27th, Pennsylvania agents recovered the trash from Koberger's family residence in Pennsylvania. And on December 28th, the Idaho State Lab reported that the DNA obtained from that trash... Identified a male as not being excluded as the biological father of a suspect profile, which means at least ninety nine point nine 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 eight percent of the male population
4: would be expected to be ex- excluded from the possibility of being the suspect's biological father. Usually, when they do DNA, for example, like the Golden State Killer, the way the reason why it took so long to get him is because they connected to him till his, like fiftieth generation great-grandparents. So connecting that family tree takes forever, where in this case the DNA match was so close it connected straight to the father, so it was easy to find, figure out who it was. So it was clear this DNA got correlated with the DNA found
2: on the scene, found on the knife sheath. That had to do with the fact that this exact person was registered under the car that was seen in the area, whose phone number was tipped off by cell records showing that he had been in and around the house where the murders occurred over 12 times and specifically was turned off during the exact hours of the murders that it was unequivocal the suspect was brian Koberger, and they were going to arrest him
4: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) AutoTrader.
2: So on Friday, December 30th, Brian Koberger was arrested doors were busted open, windows were shattered. It was in a pretty intense raid. Also, another thing that I found really interesting is when Brian was arrested, he reportedly said the words like, was anyone else arrested? And I thought that was interesting because I think that could attest to two separate theories. And one is sort of a prosecutorial theory and one is a defense theory. And the prosecution, okay, Judge Josanne over Hi. here. Fuck
0: <laughs> through the yeah, prosecution.
1: This is not an Ecker Young.
2: <laughs> through the prosecution's perspective of what that means, if I was a prosecutor, I would say that maybe he had said that because there were, I don't know, other people involved, and that's why he was wondering if anyone else was involved, or that he was extremely, you know, curious and concerned because he had a co-conspirator. Which could be one take on that and another take on that, which is sort of more of, like, the defensive side is he was so shocked that he was arrested. That he was just wondering, like, oh, was anyone else arrested that, like, maybe looked like me or maybe I just fit the description or that I was just, like, another person who happened Mm -hmm. to be in the area. And that could be adding to his case because he is, you know, obviously an educated man. So I'm not quite sure
4: why that sentence was said. I took it as, like oh, I studied criminology and I'm going to fuck with the cops, Ma- like kind of steering them in the wrong direction by being like, wait, did other people do it? So they're wasting their time investigating something else when he clearly seems like a lone wolf here.
1: I just think like, it's a, a diversion. Idiot, period, that's point blank. I, th- I think he's just opening his mouth just to say something to try to not get caught, even though we know it's you. Like You're done. You're done.
2: Yeah, I think it'll be really hard for the defense's case on this, because obviously the evidence is overwhelming, not just circumstantial, but the DNA itself, like, is insurmountable. And I think it would be insane if he were to not plead guilty. And yeah. So the day they arrested him, a warrant was served to basically enter the home of Coburgers apartment in Pullman, Washington. And through this search, they found a plethora of items that they've collected for research and to do testing on. One was a black glove, one was a Walmart receipt with one Dickies tag, two Marshall's receipts. Why are you shopping at Marshall's? I'm like, come on. We <laughs> should have known not to trust him. Please. Um, dust container, eight possible hair strands, one fire stick remote one possible animal hair strain several possible hair strands one computer tower one collection of dark red spot and two cuttings from uncased pillows of like a reddish brown stain there was no indication of if those were blood stains or what they were specifically but the the color of them were reddish brown and then two top and bottom mattress cover packages separately both labeled as multiple stands, and one was only tested. So they have collected, like, a mass amount of evidence to prove that this is him, which is just obviously unequivocal that their case is so built and strong.
4: So where we are sort of now, investigators and the public are obviously obsessed with figuring out what the motive is. Why did he do this? Did he have any connection to the roommate's? Um, And something that was really interesting that came out recently um, was that about two weeks before the killings, uh, Koberger um, had DM'd, I believe it was Kaylee, several times a variation of, hey, how are you? Um, None of which she answered. None of which is people aren't sure if she even saw it. It went into like her, you know, when you get a message from a stranger, it goes into its own little inbox. So that's where these messages Mm -hmm. were found. And he had repeatedly DM'd her again, a variation of "Hey, how are you?" to no response. So, I mean, that I'm just, Jesus, I'm always obsessed with like any, any murder, like any man murdering a bunch of women. I just assume is an incel. This just honestly confirms it a little bit more, um, that he seemingly knew who these women were and were was pursuing them and being rejected in some sort of form. And that in conjunction with the fact that a
2: former employee at a restaurant in Moscow, Idaho, where Maddie and Zanna were servers at, said that Koberger came in at least twice to pick up food from there. So it is speculated that he did know these people and that maybe he didn't have direct interactions with them, but he had been near and around them.
4: Yeah, so what is to come is that he has yet to put in a plea. He has repeatedly and him and his family has said he's not responsible for this, so... If they keep going with that, I imagine he'll put in a not guilty plea. But I mean, this evidence feels, like you said, insurmountable. So ultimately, he hasn't entered a plea yet. He is facing four counts of first degree murder and one count of burglary. If he's convicted, he faces a maximum sentence of life in prison or the death penalty, because in the state of Idaho, the death penalty is still legal. So he has some real consequences coming his way. And that's pretty much where we're at now. We're waiting to hear what his plea is going to be. We're obviously waiting to hear more information about how he's connected to them, what a possible motive was. It's really fucking creepy. It's scary how many unanswered questions there are despite the amount of evidence we have.
0: Did you know Bridgestone developed a tire using
3: 75% recycled and renewable materials? Making a difference today for future generations. That's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more.
2: Okay, so... It's chilling and it is horrific, but I think what's even more chilling is the conversation surrounding these murders and the way people are obsessed with talking about them, including ourselves. And also the internet sleuths that have actually done a lot of damage, basically accusing people and associating people and claiming them to be suspects or having to do with this murders when they have nothing to do with it at all. I think that's really dangerous. And I just wanted to pose the question to you guys. Why do you think we as a culture are so obsessed with talking about true crime? And specifically with yeah. white women, I feel like there is absolutely a trend um, there. I don't know. Like, obviously, these murders are horrifying. And I
3: think it's a part of the human condition to unfortunately, be fascinated by death. You know, there's so much unknown there that I get. But there's this other sphere that Mm -hmm. I think is really scary when we're romanticizing it and when we get like swept up in it. And I think that we're seeing that more and more. Obviously, like with podcasts, with shows, like there are so many really dark, morbid shows that are not like things that are people just writing, creating, right? Because people can create dark art, but it's like real people's stories and lives. And that's what I think is dangerous especially with, like, the Idaho murders. Like, everything that I've seen online, like, are using the victims who are still alive's names, harassing them, accusing them of having a place mm-hmm. in this. Like, it's it's really scary. And then also there is this really niche group of people that, once again, I understand being, like, this is awful. Like, this is a news story, We are fascinated with murder because we are humans and unfortunately we have to die. Cool. But then there's this niche group of people that I think that are obsessed with the idea of like potentially being in one of these types of stories. And it genuinely makes me uncomfortable on a spiritual level to say Mm. that. But I honestly didn't think that up until these last few months. Because I'm seeing TikToks where like, girls are cutting off pieces of their hair and putting it in books and like doing like really peculiar things. Yeah, there's a new
2: trend that's going around. I think it's like if I go missing trend or people are leaving traces of their DNA for detectives to find them if they go missing. And it's funny because Whoopi Goldberg said like on The View, she was like, if you're black or indigenous, honestly, this is a good thing because there is such a lack of of drive and conversation around a person of color getting missing than it would be for a white person. And also, here's the thing, too. Like, I think there's a difference between
3: women being taught, like, self-defense and having safety precautions, like sharing your location. That is not what we're talking about. Yes. We're talking about—I don't. That's a different episode. But there's a different conversation in regards to, like, I think that when you are a person— Of color or if you are a part of a marginalized group, you have spent your whole life feeling like you are in a mode of survival or feeling as if there is some impending danger your whole life. But if you Mm. are someone of a great amount of privilege and you haven't felt that danger, there's something like bad and scary and dangerous that you think is cute in a way that isn't funny and people lose their lives because they're in danger a lot. You know what I mean? So it's really it's just really odd to me in addition how we talk about something like so dark so tragic with just a lack of care and lack of compassion like these were real people's humans lives like it's not a story that somebody just wrote a script like it's actually terrifying to me how people are just talking about this making jokes making assumptions saying what they
2: would do because I'm like "Mm -hmm." the ramifications of it are yeah insurmountable
1: See, Alicia, uh, Alicia, like, no, I, I, I think I think you you hit it on the nose where it's a lot of times a lot of people like to fantasize about what if this was me? Look at all the attention. And it, it that has to do with a lot of attention that this is getting. And a lot of times on social media, like on TikTok, you see so many people who honestly know nothing about this these cases who've known nothing but have read one news article and will give well if i were in this circumstance this is what i would do or the two surviving roommates they should be in prison for doing x y and z when it's like you weren't there you don't know what anything was going down and i feel like it's so easy on the outside to give an opinion when it when you have no idea what the ramifications are do y'all think that all this information should be available because i don't
2: well it's interesting because Only some of this information has come out, Mm. and the I believe it was a judge or someone involved in the investigation didn't want a lot of this evidence to be released until, like, the first week of March, Yeah, which is why it was shocking that we received so much information, I think, just a few days ago um, from when we're recording this, because they said that it could be of damage to the investigation, that it could— possibly endanger the surviving roommates and it It could possibly ruin the process of trying to charge and 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 like the integrity of the case i feel like it has
4: well i also think here information is power and i don't necessarily think having to hear in detail the injuries of the victims is something we need to know but i think it is good to have Mm. a lot of the information out there because you know reddit's gonna reddit people are gonna go crazy the less information you have the more the conspiracies run wild Mm. and the more like that puts people who are affected by this murder in danger so i think having the information out there is important to getting the story straight now we all have there's no set of truths anymore in our culture yeah so (laughs) there's always gonna be people who uh who doubt but i think getting as much information of like this is what happened all of your conspiracies are bullshit yeah is a good thing i think there's power to that to an extent see that's the
1: that's the thing caroline i I, yeah i think I, i feel like i feel like especially in the year of 2023 and with Reddit, social media, TikToks and whatnot, conspiracy is on the rise. I sound like a crazy mom saying that conspiracy is on the rise, but it really is. You see, like even with Alex Jones, correct? With he's saying um, the Sandy Hook massacre didn't happen and people actually believe that. It's because I feel like if truth, the truth isn't shared with a reliable source and it gives mm-hmm. people the opportunity and the freedom to start steering away from what actually happened. And I feel like in cases like this, you need to have the truth. And I do agree. I don't think what happened to the victims, the atrocities, the exact detail or the autopsies should be public information. Yeah. I, don't I also don't think that, don't think that
3: for the families to be mourning. The murderer should be getting fame, which he is, because it empowers other people not to take it there and not to make it that dark. 100%. But
1: 100%. one of there
3: is a plethora of reasons that school shootings. No, happen. you're right. We know you're
1: that. You're right.
3: Please end and ban arms in this country. I said what I said. But anyways, one of the many reasons that I think school shooters, at least this is what experts have said, I don't know nothing, but psychologists and stuff, is the fame that they get after because they become phenomenons. So I don't even want to say this man's name. What he did was awful. I hope that he has tried properly under the law. But him gaining fame in the way he is on TikTok and Reddit and everything else does people who are not mentally well
2: could encourage them in a way. I think that's important to know. One thing that I find I don't want to see joy in, but I've seen it spoken a lot or said a lot by a lot of investigators and detectives and lawyers and people who are very familiar with crime and these types of cases is when they mention how dumb he is because he actually is quite dumb. There are so (laughs) many steps that occurred that clearly indicated that He is dumb and he's not as smart as he thinks he is. He's not a man to put on a pedestal. Well, there's so much evidence um, through the phone records that he had been over 12 times to the house and had only turned off his phone during the exact hours of the murders themselves. So, I mean, he's a fucking idiot. He's he's not that bright. And ultimately, he left his shoe print, he left his DNA Mm -hmm. on the knife. He was seen by one of the roommates. Yeah. Literally, walking
3: out the house. He
2: clearly didn't do as. You know, well, as he thought as he was going as to he do. thought he was going to well i I'm going to ask
3: you guys a question that I don't even think I fully have my own answer to, but how do how do we think that we should be approaching situations like this where awful things are happening? It feels like violence and crime is like only rising, you know, not to sound like a Republican, yeah, Ugh. but. Um, you know, horrific things happen. And now because of social media and all of these other resources, we speak about it more. There's more of an audience. So is there an ethical or moral way that we go about
2: handling these situations? I think social media has proven to be an incredibly useful tool for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. And particularly with technology and DNA technology and genealogy, which we've seen be able to find people that were involved in cold cases for several, several years. Yeah, yeah. And especially with um, Gabby and when she was missing. Gabby Potato, Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. on TikTok. But I also think with any useful tool, there is the abuse of that tool. Mm-hmm. And I think we see that so much. And so your question was, how how do we approach it? How do we talk about it? Do we not talk about it at all? I think all? we approach it with discernment and with, with education. I, mm-hmm. I think we have to look at the facts. Yeah. I think... And
3: respect and compassion. Yeah,
2: as a society, we've gotten so used to speaking before reading and Mm -hmm. claiming before thinking. And I think that the more that we research and understand the facts, the more we can better equip ourselves to make statements that aren't based on irrational theories and conspiracies. And that can actually, like, contribute to benefiting for a case. Because I think that— I think there is something to say about it being helpful.
3: No, I, I agree. I think it's important that we do have conversations about like defense and being able to note things and have the discernment to go, okay, this isn't a safe situation. I think there's so many resources. I think we find people, you know, this there's this whole movement that, everybody should be tuned into in regards to finding indigenous women that go missing or unfortunately our sex traffic right so i think that that's important but i also do think it's really important that we don't get desensitized to death and we don't get desensitized to forgetting the fact that these are people's lives and their families I mourning agree. right now so it's not cute for you to get on your phone or get on a podcast or get on a tiktok and be like this is what i would have done or is that girl crazy or why were they up late drinking anyways having that fun like please shut up Leave those type of opinions to yourself and remember that people died. And take a moment and respect that before you say anything. And sometimes you don't need to say nothing at all. I think, frankly, in a lot of moments in regards to true crime and and death
4: and stuff, I don't need to say nothing at all except send those families love. You feel me? I think no matter what, like true crime and these types of crime stories are always going to be something that our culture is obsessed with. Like, that's just a truth that's going to be going on forever. So I think one thing we need to ask ourselves is like, whose stories are we elevating? Are we just elevating missing white girl stories? Um, Are we just elevating, you know, stories that feel relatable to you personally? Because like Alicia was saying, the amount of indigenous women and women of color whose stories are never told and whose murders happen so often and don't hit any mainstream media is so horrifying. So Mm -hmm, if we do mm -hmm. find ourselves obsessed with these stories, there are stories where talking about it and bringing it to the mainstream is going to be beneficial. So you can get your sick fantasy fix while also doing a good thing because let's be real. I'm a white girl who loves true crime. I'm still always going to be engaging in true crime. I'm going to try and make sure that stories I'm looking into aren't just the Gabby Petito stories, whose stories should be told too, because she also died unfairly. But everyone's stories should be told. Yeah, everyone's stories should be told equal.
1: See, I think. I think that's important to call out. And I also feel like at the end of the day, we're all like, you have to look at it from a human standpoint. For example, Crime Junkie, I think that's an amazing place to listen to true crime because they also have a foundation solving cold cases. They also always uh, share stories about Indigenous and POC women and sex workers as well who've gone missing. But I pose the question to look inwards and really ask yourself, why am I fascinated by this? Obviously it's the human condition to be fascinated by death like Alicia said but really why am i listening to this why is it entertaining to me that's the, at least for me that's what i asked myself when i like really like an episode the
2: relationship to the media and true crime has existed for so long and also perpetrator's relationship to them as well and the police like specifically with like the zodiac killer and how he taunted investigators mm-hmm. and You know, there was newspaper editorials, and it's just something that's always been around. I think it's just exacerbated by social media and the way we use social media on a much more visceral level.
1: Have you guys seen on TikTok how they're like the killer? Look how handsome. Or like, you know how a lot of yeah, people Ted Bundy was not hot. would be like. I don't
4: know where that narrative came well, from. Well, no, even not this case, man.
1: they were like, he's a young man getting his PhD. Like, look how attractive. I'm like, you guys Yeah, are there are people fucks. writing
4: love letters to
2: Ted Bundy and love letters we're to trying him. to get married to him. He had his long-term uh, partner.
4: I mean, I did write a vaccinated. letter to Manson. No, I didn't. Oh, I thought about Jesus it though. Jesus Christ. <laughs>
2: I think at the end of the day, there is no exciting end to the story. It is tragic and it is awful. And no no matter what happens with this trial, the victims are Ethan, Zanna, Kaylee, Maddie, their families, and the two surviving roommates. And that is unequivocal. And no matter what, they're going to have to live with that for the rest of their lives, which is horrifying and saddening. But... I'm glad that we're having conversations, at least around how we can be better communicators in the culture of true crime in general, because I think we can do a lot of good if we are well-intentioned. And I think starting that conversation is like a good first step. Yeah.
1: Dare We Say, is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Reston is our showrunner, producer, and mommy. And Ari Schwartz is our producer and show daddy. Fiona Pastana is our associate producer. And Sandy Girard is the almighty executive producer. It's hosted and produced by me, Josie Toda. And me, Yasmeen Hamadi. And me, Alicia Pascual-Pena. Our
3: engineer and editor is Jordan Cantor. And Brian Vasquez is our theme music composer. Our video producers are Matt De Groot, Narm Melkonian, and Dylan Villanueva, and Mia Kalman.
2: Lastly, thank you to Jordan Silver, Gabriella Leverett, Jesse McLean, Caroline Haywood, Shayna Hortzman, Daisy Cruz, Danielle Jensen, and Awa Okaladi for marketing the show and making us look so damn good.